Let's go ahead and talk about Isaiah this week. First, we got to start how? Context. Context, everybody's favorite. Now, this is going to be very important because we're starting major prophets now, right? We're gonna, the last section of Old Testament survey is major and minor prophets. Everybody got notes? Anybody need notes? Need notes? They're over here, I think. John, you still got notes? Yes. Okay. Do you have them? Yeah. Oh, Jen. All right, good. I know, right? Okay. Um, good. Okay, so we're starting. Uh, we, we got prophets left. That's all we've got left in the Old Testament survey, by the way. You had to notice we're just going in the order of the book of the Bible. There's other orders to do this. We've chosen this way because we feel like it'd be most relatable with just starting it this way and turning right. Um, so uh, now the problem with that is some of them are not chronologically in order, um, but that's where context is important. So each one of these prophets from Isaiah to the end of Malachi, they take place in the book of history um, that we see from uh, all the way from Joshua to Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. Okay? So in that time frame is where the majority of your prophet books are going to come. Uh, Isaiah, obviously, is the author of this book, and he wrote this book of Isaiah sometime at the end of the 8th century B.C. Really where he comes in is somewhere in the middle of First and Second Kings. Um, so if you notice, if you remember what happened from our history study, uh, both Israel and Judah, uh, they've split. They've been slipping further and further into idolatry for years. Until finally God had enough of Israel and sends the Assyrians to conquer them. Uh, now Isaiah is in Jerusalem after the Assyrians have conquered the north. And now the Assyrians are headed towards Judah. Now you remember this, we covered this in, in First and Second Kings, right? Um, but this is the time Isaiah is prophesying. Now this is where it's difficult for us when we come to the book of prophets is we want to start in Isaiah and immediately go like all the way back to Joshua and just feel like, okay, he had to prophesy sometime in here. Let's keep it in order. Let's go the prophets through the history. That's not how uh, the canon we have is constructed. So it's really important that we understand the genres of Scripture, right? You have law and uh, Pentateuch in the first five books. You've got history, which is what we just covered, again, from Joshua all the way to Ezra and Nehemiah Esther. And now we have we also covered uh, the Psalms, the poetry, um, and wisdom literature, and now we come to the prophets. And the prophets do take place within that realm of history again. So, Isaiah is in Jerusalem. The Assyrians are headed towards Judah. And we can actually read the narrative of how Jerusalem survives Assyria. Because it's given to us in Isaiah chapter 36 through 39, as we see God's miraculous grace there. But, but taking a step back, when we talk about historical context, we need to take a step back and look at the redemptive history, right? Because Isaiah is prophesying in a crucial moment of redemptive history. Because Israel has been destroyed, scattered by the, the Assyrians, and Judah's own existence right here is hanging in the balance. So much of the focus of the book is on the sin that brought Israel and Judah to these breaking points. Sins like idolatry, like chasing after other gods, the gods of the world around them. But Amazingly enough, the redemptive historical role of this book is greater than all the sin and punishment of Isaiah's day. Rather, Isaiah also spends a lot of time pointing explicitly and repeatedly towards the future. In fact, more than any other book that we've looked at so far, Isaiah points forward to a time of comfort for the afflicted people of God, to the time when God will visit his people, when God will send forth the Savior and he will restore the world, bringing 
a new heaven and new earth. And so that is the context that we see quite a bit in the book of Isaiah. Now we move to theme. Uh, we need to get a feeling for the setting that the book creates. We're supposed to really envision here a courtroom setting, okay? So just go ahead and get that law and order music playing in your mind a little bit, okay? Especially in the second half of the book. Uh, God is the judge, uh, and in many ways he's also the prosecutor. He's calling his covenant people to court, and they are to give an account for their actions and to establish the truth. Isaiah is like the lawyer executing God's case. And I know that we are a new covenant creation, but if you could even picture the reality of what it would look like as an old covenant people um, to sit in a courtroom with God as the judge and prosecutor and Isaiah as the lawyer, if you're not trembling a little bit, um, you don't know your sin very well, and you should, because uh, that's what's happening here. What's interesting is that the whole earth is called upon to come and hear this case, uh, to hear this establishment of the truth. And here's the truth. The truth is this. Yahweh is the only God. That's what's on the table here. Right? There are four reasons here. You have those in your notes. Boy, that was a really big footnote I put at the end of that thing. That was on authorship, though. Not... All right. Uh, exhibit A. Yeah, you should do the bum-bum. No, uh, don't. Uh, I, exhibit A, he alone is holy. The holy one of Israel, whereas the idols are the creation of man's idolatrous hearts, and the people are sinful. So he alone is holy. Exhibit B, he alone is high and lifted up, or majestic, whereas the idols and kings of the earth are lifted up only in vain pride. So he alone is holy, he alone is high and lifted up, majestic, but he alone also controls history. Exhibit C, he alone controls history. He sees and controls the future, whereas the idols and great kings of the nations cannot do a thing. They cannot save anyone. And then exhibit D, he alone can save bringing peace to the earth in the form of a new creation, whereas the idols cannot save and the kings only bring war. So every redemptive historical theme, bar none, runs through Israel and points with a megaphone into the future towards Jesus Christ's ministry. Did anybody miss any of those? Do I need to go over them again? Okay, got them. So this thematic statement really could go on for as long as the book of Isaiah itself. However, that those four exhibits will suffice for now. All of the redemptive historical themes that appear in the book work themselves out in this context of challenging Israel and challenging Judah for their idolatry, but yet pointing toward the future. And it's in pointing forward toward the future where we'll encounter this important phrase that's going to appear a whole lot of times before we're done with the prophets particularly, and it's the phrase, the day of the Lord. We're going to hear a great deal about the future in the day of the Lord. This eschatological king, the spirit, and Yahweh's star witness in this case against his people, and that being his servant with a capital S, the anointed one, Messiah. You've got there your outline with pivotal text. I won't go through those, but remember that's a great resource for uh, your Bible reading plans. kind of help you make that big theme a little bit smaller as you're reading 
um, through this book. Remember, this whole study is geared towards the idea that you are reading through the book of Isaiah, right? Um, that you, this is, this, if you're not reading your Bible, Old Testament survey doesn't do much for you, right? Mm. Um, but this is all with the presumption that we're reading the Bible daily, and it's a great tool for that. Let's go ahead and go to theme text. We're going to open up to chapter 6 of Isaiah first. Be spending a lot of time there because there's a lot of themes that we see take place there. Um, in fact, there are tons of other texts that we could go to. Um, a lot of texts in Isaiah that are important for us uh, to understand this redemptive history. Uh, but we could we could spend honestly uh, one day. I'm gonna I'm gonna preach through this book um, one day, um, and we'll see what that pace looks like. But we honestly we could spend as much time in Isaiah certainly as we did in Genesis and in Exodus for for sure. Uh, but time is limited. So we've got to pick and choose just a few that embody the, the thrust of the book as a whole. So chapter 6 is probably the best place to start. We, we know chapter 6 pretty well. Everybody familiar a little bit? But it takes place in chapter 6 of Isaiah, aren't you? Um, and here we encounter most of the themes in the book. And, and we know what happens. What happens? Isaiah has what? He has a vision, right? He sees the Lord. Uh, he's seated on his heavenly throne. He's arrayed in dazzling holiness. Um, what we don't know is that the first five chapters, on the other hand, have really been filled with nothing but indictment after indictment after indictment of Judah's sin. Remember the southern nation, Judah. That's why I quizzed you on that, so that you would know. Uh, with only a few moments of hope in those first five chapters, the tone of indictment is overwhelming, and it's sad. The people of Judah are sinners, and they are unholy. And so it's against that backdrop that we turn to chapter 6, and we see this awesome holiness of the Lord. Um, I want to just kind of read some verses in the chapter. Um, read that chapter. If you've never read Isaiah 6, make sure you read it. Uh, this vision that Isaiah has here influences and shapes the rest of Isaiah's ministry. And so it's not surprising that most of the themes of the book, again, are found right here in Isaiah 6. Let's take a look. Somebody start by reading verse 1 for me. Okay, what were the words that Isaiah used to describe how he saw Yahweh in this vision? He saw the Lord how? High and lifted up, right? Shining in the light of your glory. Um, so, uh, that he is lifted up. That really, this, this theme is it's meant to convey his preeminence, his superiority uh, over all things. It's meant to convey his great majesty and his being and nature. He is unlike anything else in the universe because he is in a class all by himself. He's incomparable. You can't compare him. Any simile that we may think of to compare him to would only do one thing, and that is place a pale shadow of the reality of who he is. He is, indeed, high and lifted up. Secondly, did you notice in verse 1, in his loftiness, that he's seated where? And what's he wearing? Robe. What's that image of? Who sits on a throne and wears robes? Kings, right? Yeah. He, he is it's that of the king. He's the king, but what is he king over? King over the entire universe, right? In fact, uh, look at verse 3. Someone read verse 3 for me. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Okay, notice what's full of his glory? The whole earth. 
See, he's not like King Uzziah, who just died. Uzziah was the sinning king over one small nation. Yahweh, on the other hand, is the eternal king who never sleeps nor slumbers and will never die, who reigns over every single last corner of all of his creation. So the fact that Yahweh's glory fills the whole earth means something. Guess how much room we have for other gods' glories? None. There's no room for any other gods in this earth. Yahweh will brook no rivals. He will not share his glory with another. Only one God exists, and and it just so happens that this only God will be the one who receives all the glory. And so Yahweh's insistence that there are no other gods is going to be something that's repeated all the way through Isaiah, just over and over again often. But what's the adjective in verse 3 that's used to describe him? Oh, we know that one, don't we? It's adjective holy. It's, 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 often, it's only repeated three times like this in the Bible to describe one being, and it is Yahweh. It's His one overwhelming attribute from which spring the glorious manifestations of all of His other attributes. It is His holiness. To be holy, as we discussed when we studied... Anybody remember that book of Be Holy? Therefore, be holy as I am holy. They're going to make me preach through it one day. Dude. Leviticus. Um, yeah. Uh, when we talk about that. Right. It's close. Um, it really was. Uh, so, um, to be holy means what? What does it mean? Set apart. Set apart, right? Yeah, like utterly distinct and different. And just as it does to be high and lifted up, but, but added to that distinctiveness and Difference is complete uprightness, perfect uprightness, and ethical purity. Yahweh does not have a single moral imbalance in him whatsoever. He is completely righteous in all of his dealings, in all of his ways. Everything he does and everything he is is marked by inviolable sanctity. That is why Isaiah's most common name For Yahweh will be the Holy One of Israel. So one thing that Isaiah will do for the rest of the book is to compare everyone else to Yahweh, but he doesn't just compare them to the way we would compare God, right? Is to say, well, our God created the world, yours didn't. Isaiah is always concerned when he's comparing other gods to God with one thing, and that's his holiness. That's it. He, He loves to compare those other gods to Yahweh's Holiness. The people are sinners. The kings of the earth are corrupt. The idols of the nations are nothing more than the corrupt inventions of men's evil hearts. But Yahweh, He's holy. He's distinct, different, and perfect uprightness and ethical purity. Okay, so now we look at verse 5 of chapter 6. What does it say? Then I said, All right, so what I want to point out in verse 5 really is the sinfulness of the people, right? Even Yahweh's own people. They are, as the text says, unclean. Yahweh's holiness is not a cause for alarm in and of itself. The problem arises when Yahweh's holiness rubs against the sinfulness of his creatures, especially his covenant people. 
So throughout the book, this people's sinfulness is highlighted. It's demonstrated just how wicked it is when it's compared, obviously, to the brightness that is the holiness of the Lord. But nonetheless, the good news about this holy Yahweh is he is full of grace. See, in the following verses, Yahweh takes the initiative and purifies Isaiah to enter into his service. He forgives Isaiah's sins. He sets his sins apart. So the themes of Yahweh's grace and long-suffering with Judah is also something that's seen in every turn of this book. Well, some, from verses 9 to 12 of chapter 6, there's so much we could talk about. Sin blinding the people, preventing them from seeing the divine glory. Sin deafening the people to the word of the Lord. The people's helplessness in that very state. Um, the exile as punishment for them, their sin. We've seen that in Second Samuel. Uh, and so on. But I want to turn your attention to verse 13 now. Somebody read verse 13 for me. But yet a tenth will be in it, and will return and be and be for consuming, as a terebinth tree or as an oak, whose stump remains when it is cut down, so the holy seed shall be its stump. Okay, that's great. Um, so uh, after the exile that's described, the exile is actually described in verses 11 and 12, there's going to be a return. Okay. And, and through the nations, and, and even though they'll be cut down in a terrible way, there will nevertheless be a remnant. Like the way a tree leaves behind a, when it's cut down, a stump. Right. Uh, so what key, let me ask you, there's a key redemptive historical word there in verse 13. Does anybody know what that word is? When we think about redemptive history, it's a key word. What's that? Not remnant. Well, it depends on what version you have here. No, not remnant. It's in the last line. Mm. The holy seed. Why is seed a key redemptive historical word, everybody? Who can tell me? Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, right? Remember the promise, the very first promise of the Messiah? Right? He will bear his seed, his offspring. He will bruise. I'm sorry, his seed. Well, let's go there. I'm going to mess it up. Genesis 3.15. We have to understand this. Remember, this is, the, this is the text the rest of the Bible explains and does battle with over and over again. Okay, uh, Verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. That's plural, right? Then it goes singular. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So when we see that word seed, we know, we know we're talking redemptive historically. We know that we, all of the Bible and all of the Old Testament has been looking for that seed, the singular seed. Well, God has not forgotten that promised seed and his plan of redemption, even if he has to take punitive actions against his people. So, this vision of the Lord is juxtaposed with the sinfulness of the people. It always ends on grace. The holy seed will return. And this is actually something we're going to see in all the prophets, okay? Bear with me, because it's going to be a lot of this, this similar messages. They will all have messages of destruction, make you blush a little bit. You'll be like, woof. And then there's calls to repent, and you'll be like, yes. But they always end on grace and a remnant. Always will remain. Specifically in Isaiah, the grace that he'll prophesy about in the light of Judah's oncoming enemies. It's the promise that God will recreate the universe after 
the exile. We're going to look at that in a moment. I'm just not going to get finished tonight, but that's okay. 66 chapters is a lot, right? So, the next section, we are going to turn all the way to chapter 7. Um, and so, uh, chapter 7 through 12 is all about how that grace and, and chapter 6, 13, that seed, that remnant, how it's going to be accomplished. How is this remnant going to be saved? It's the prophecy of a coming eschatological. Who wants to tell me what eschatological means? Of the last days. Of the regarding end times. Every time you hear eschatological, eschatology, it's regarding last things. Think future end things, all right? If I were to put revelation into that, it would much be much better. But revelationatological is not a, a word. So um, eschatological is where we're going. Okay, We're talking about end times here. So, so this is what we're kind of looking for. It's a prophecy of that coming end times king, that final king in the line of David, who's going to defeat the enemies of God once and for all. So let's go ahead and someone read um, chapter 7, verses 13 through 17 for me. Good. Thank you, Melody. All right. Um, so let's start at the house of David. What's the house of David? Can anybody tell me what that is? Say the house of David. Temple. Not necessarily the temple. We're thinking more allegorically. His lineage, his family, right? We think of houses from the night families or something like that. It, it really is referring to, when we think about the house of David, we think about the kingly line, right? The kingly line that David, uh, of Yahweh that David, or I'm sorry, the kingly line of David that Yahweh promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7 would continue forever. Well, okay, let's think about the context here now, okay? Two armies, they're coming up to Jerusalem to attack. They just destroyed Israel. Remember, how many of the tribes of Israel were in the, the, the northern kingdom of Israel? Ten. Ten tribes absolutely obliterated by these coming armies, and there's only two left, and they're in Judah, okay? So, so a little bit of freaking out's happening at this point. So the house of David is in trouble. In fact, let me read chapter 7, verse 6, that helps us understand this a little bit. It says, Let us go up against Judah and trouble it, and let us make a gap in its wall for ourselves and set a king over them, the son of Tabal. Okay, that's a problem. What's their plan? They want to remove what? The king. That's a problem, right? It's particularly if you're thinking of the house of David, the problem of 2 Samuel 7, place him with another, so to assure the king of Judah that his line will not be broken and that the house of David will indeed remain, Yahweh gives this sign that Melody just read, and that sign was of a young woman who will have a child. And as it says in verse 16, before the child's a few years old, the attacking armies... Are going to be overtaken by another. So the house of David will be safe again for a while. Now, it probably is a good time right now to take a brief detour and discuss the way Old Testament prophecy works. Have you ever wondered about that? 
We're going to start by asking this question. What is this passage in Isaiah 7 most famous for? That Melody just read her passage, not mine. Right. Virgin birth of Jesus. Did you get that? In Matthew chapter 1, we're told that Jesus' birth by the Virgin Mary fulfills this prophecy. Jesus is the final king in the line of David. Jesus is Emmanuel, otherwise known as God with us. So this passage we just looked at, it prophesies the birth of Jesus Christ some 700 plus years later. But that's not what I just described that happened. I just described that a baby would be born in Isaiah's day before Assyria comes from the north. In fact, that's exactly what happened. Look at chapter 8 of Isaiah. Isaiah. Someone read verses 3 and 4. Then I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name. Blah, blah, blah. I don't know. For <laughs> well, before the child shall have knowledge to cry, my father and my mother, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be taken away before the king of Assyria. Now, how many of you briefly read verse 3 and said, I'm not reading that out loud because I'm not trying to pronounce that name? Be honest with me. Mayor Shal Hashbaz. Mayor Shal Hashbaz. Hashbaz. Well, good for you. Yeah. <laughs> That's my middle name. No. Um, all right. Um, You're in the position. That's right. Uh, listen, you just say it with confidence, right? That's all that matters. Okay, so okay, so what's the deal? Because we just had this baby that was born right here in chapter 8. So if this prophecy was fulfilled in Isaiah's day, why does Matthew think it speaks about Jesus over 700 years later? Well, here's the answer. Old Testament prophecy usually has what we call near and far fulfillment. It's as though when a prophecy is made, there is an immediate fulfillment. We could call this first uh, the horizon of fulfillment. Uh, But then years later, usually generations later, there'll be another horizon of fulfillment. And the second horizon will involve a greater fulfillment than the first fulfillment. There may even be a third or fourth horizon of fulfillment for some particular prophecies. But finally, the horizons all come to an end in Christ, whose life, death, and resurrection comprise the greatest and most climactic of fulfillments. And I did have this footnote I want to share, because I'm not going to get through it, so I might as well. Um, At least one reason for this is, is particularly in this context, is to verify that a prophet's a legitimate prophet. Right? So think about this in the context. How do we know, according to the Scriptures, that a prophet is a legitimate prophet? They prophesy something and... It happens. If they prophesy something and it doesn't happen, or even if it doesn't happen for 700 years, that person's going to lose their reputation as a prophet. So even God in his foreknowledge and wisdom allows this to even have a first horizon of fulfillment in part to legitimize the prophecy, okay? Um, That's Deuteronomy 18 that gives us that uh, test there. So an example of this is right here in Matthew chapter seven, chapter eight, and Matthew. Or I'm sorry, in Isaiah seven and eight, and Matthew one. So, so yes, a young virtuous woman had a child, which served as a sign that Yahweh would protect the house of David. But an even greater fulfillment is that a virgin would have a child, and that child will not be a symbol of the Lord's salvation from an earthly army. Rather, he will be the very source of salvation from something far worse 
than any army could bring. Matthew 1 tells us that the virgin-born child will save his people from their sins, which happens to be the tyrant of all tyrants, if you didn't know that. But there's another form of typology here. Does anybody remember what typology is? You could put it in your words. Where, Man, I knew I should have given a quiz, you know? I'm going to give a final exam at the end of Old Testament. You're going to have to know some of these terms. They're very important. Okay, remember, it's that thing where real historical persons or events or institutions in God's sovereignty, they prefigure or they are a shadow of, of Christ in some way. So there's a lot more that could be said about the section of Isaiah in chapter 7 through 12, but we need to move on. Uh, we're probably going to end right there. Um, but there's a lot more we could say. Uh, but let me just summarize it by saying that, that right there in chapter 7, it's a typological prophecy of salvation that Christ will bring to both Jew and Gentile. It's about first Yahweh's preservation of Judah, and then that serves as a type of what Yahweh will do through Christ in the future. Again, wish we had more time to explain. Maybe we do. Let's just keep moving, and then we'll stop it in three minutes. Give me three minutes. Um, all right. I can always take questions afterwards as well. Let's go ahead and really move forward now to chapter 24. Chapters 13 through 35 uh, are what we call a long discourse on that, that theme, that topic we already mentioned called the Day of the Lord. We're going to talk about more of the Day of the Lord when we look at a significant amount of the other prophets, but for now... We can simply define it as a day when Yahweh will visit the earth and judge the people for their sins and for their oppression of God's people. And at the same time, will vindicate and save his people. So it's a time when judgment and salvation take place. Yahweh will also, on the day of the Lord, recreate the universe as well. So turn to chapter 24 and someone go ahead and read for me verse 1. Behold, the Lord makes the earth empty and makes it waste, distorts its surface, and scatters abroad its inhabitants. All right, so that's a return to, to the very beginning, isn't it? Sounds like Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, when the world was void and desolate. All right, then we see verse 3 that says, The land shall be entirely emptied and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word. This is another reversal of the creation story. And God filled the earth in the creation story, and now what's he doing? Emptying it, right? Someone read verse 4 for me. The earth mourns and withers, the world, the world fades and withers, and exalted are the people of the earth fade away. All right, so it dries up and withers. That's kind of the opposite of Genesis chapter 2. When God watered the land, now he's drying it up. whole scene is meant for us to see that creation is being undone, and why? Verse 5. The earth is also defiled under the inhabitants thereof, because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinance, broken the everlasting covenant. Ah. So the reason is sin. Sin is calling for Yahweh's justice upon the earth. In the context, he's calling for the nations of Babylon to come and destroy the nations. They are the ones who will destroy everything, but they are serving as instruments of Yahweh's judgment. 
the imagery here is to describe that judgment is that of creation running backwards. So here we have another near and far fulfillment. Babylon will invade all the nations and destroy their land. But in the distant future, Yahweh himself will bring an eternal and permanent judgment, which will include the refurbishing of the whole universe. Okay? Any questions about that? So we're kind of in a reverse creation right now, I would say. In, in, so it depends on your eschatology, but yes. If, if, it's not getting better in this world. It's getting worse and worse and worse. Yeah, in fact, I would believe that would take place probably more in uh, the eschatological view of all millennialism than anything else, which says that this is the millennial age. So it really has to do with your view of end times, okay. that this is the, the thousand-year reign. Uh, carried along that view is the idea that the earth is going to get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. God is going to return on that point in time. There is no such such rapture which pulls you away. At that point in time, all of it's going to take place right here. The world's going to be judged as people are going to be saved, and the new heavens and new earth will be recreated at that point in time. That's one eschatological view. There are several others. The post-millennial view actually believes that we're going to usher in that kingdom to such a degree that we're actually in the recreating process a little bit ourselves. Um, so that really depends on your eschatological view, but I actually would, would agree with that. Um, that I think that we're, we're part of that watching the world in the reverse creation order. Sure. That's good. Alright, let me apply it and we'll go home um, and finish the rest tomorrow. I don't have too much. I've got like one page here. So, But I'm still going to save it for you, okay? Um, uh, so, uh, listen. Um, one application I want to say, just to close, and that is this. We, what we need more than anything, I really believe, is a vision of God like Isaiah had. Now, I don't, I don't mean that we need to be caught up in a vision per se, but, but what we need to do is we need to catch a glimpse of Yahweh's holiness and glory the way Isaiah did. Because here's the reality. If we can see the Lord a little bit better for who He is, it'll change the way we see everything else. Exactly. And, and, and that in turn... Seeing everything the way we should will change the way we live. We will desire to be more personally holy. We will desire to be more humble, more patient and forgiving with others. We will be more earnest in prayer, more zealous in missions and evangelism and, and so on. And uh, What I'm saying is essentially this. All right living begins with right thinking about God. So to that end... What we need is higher and loftier, truer, and more beautiful thoughts about the Holy One of Israel. And Isaiah can help us with that. So read Isaiah. We'll pick up the last of that really quickly tomorrow and probably start Jeremiah and Lamentations, which I wrote as one. See how that works. Um, any questions? I think it's amazing that it was with his lips he was undone. Yeah. It didn't say with his heart or with his mm. eyes or with his ears. It was through his lips. And aren't we supposed to proclaim with our... You know, yeah, I, well... I just think of all the ways he was undone with his lips. Well, particularly when you understand that he was he was a prophet, yeah. right? That, that this was the very way that God was, was going done. to use him was yeah. through his lips. And it comes into the presence of God and he's immediately aware of how unclean his own lips are before he can proclaim the, the true message of the gospel. Well, what does Jesus say about the connection between the mouth and the heart? 
Right. So that's the, right. It's not what goes into a man that defiles us. It's what comes what out. Comes out. Yeah, that's right. With our lips. What comes out of the mouth comes out. That is a good reiteration. You're right. That's great. Anybody else? All right. Read the book of Isaiah sometime this week, you know, as you're doing all your other Bible readings. And you have a helpful Bible study tool now. Remember what the purpose of all this is. You're going to get questions about Isaiah one day. You're going to have a great resource to help understand how Isaiah points to Christ. I was telling whoever was here earlier this week, I'm almost done with one of my research papers, and it should be really easy because the topic is preaching Christ from the Old Testament, um, right? Um, But I'm really thankful for my school because they promote this as one of the very core things of what it means to be a pastor and preacher is that the Old Testament is about Jesus. If we don't know where Jesus is in Isaiah, then we will absolutely not have a right view of who God is, right? What is knowing God but knowing Jesus Christ as Son, right? And so we have to understand this. And if we're not digging down deep and paying attention and thinking through how does this show us Christ, um, then we're going to miss a good two-thirds of the scriptures we have, right? God. Thank you guys for being here. Let me pray for you. You'll be dismissed. Lord, thank you so much for this book of Isaiah. Thank you. Just uh, Lord, We only covered a couple chapters tonight, but even though we saw very prevalent themes of your holiness, Lord, the day that we long for, the day of the Lord that's coming quickly, um, it's a day that's been inaugurated through Christ, but as we wait, it's full of final fulfillment. Lord, help us to be like Isaiah and the ability to speak your truth, to proclaim your goodness and holiness to a lost and dying world. Uh, Father, would you reveal the idols in our own hearts as well as we seek to do that? Would you be with us and give us much grace because we're in need of it? And we thank you that even in the midst of the judgment of the people's sin, Father, you always end on grace. And Lord, we thank you uh, how that teaches us about your son Jesus and the grace he gives to us through his death. We love you, Lord. Be with these sweet people now as they go a separate ways. Name to live for you in Jesus' name.